Listening to too much information on WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker. Today we have a very special guest joining us live in the studio. Keo Stark has coming in to talk about her new book, Don't Go Back to School. But first, I'm going to play an interview I did the other day with the filmmaker Olivier Assayas. His new movie, Something in the Air, just opened up this past weekend. The film set at the beginning of the 70s. Gilles, a high school student in Paris, is swept up by the political fever of the time. But his real-life dream is to make art, something his friends can't relate to. For them... Politics is everything. The French title for this movie is Après May, which is, of course, May 1968. So when I called Olivier up in France, I asked him, is this a movie set in the afterglow of revolutionary times or more like an echo? It's a different perspective depending on on, uh, if you are looking back on it or if you try to remember how it felt when you were living it. When you were living it, you, it, it did not feel like the aftermath of anything. It, 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 more, it, it, it felt mostly like uh, the threshold of new times. It, it felt like, uh, you know, like uh, the world was going to change. Some revolution was coming that would, uh, you know, that would uh, sweep away the old world. So, you know, it's it's as much as uh, May '68, the, the you know, the student rebellion in France was, you know, like a defining moment in in, in French uh, radical culture. Uh, it, it it felt like a dress rehearsal. I mean, the big one was coming, and you know, in, in, and in the early '70s when I was growing, the kids we were very naive, and we had this notion that. We, you know, we, 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 the, the, the best was yet to come. Uh, so, but then, of course, if, if, if we are looking back on it, we realize that whatever was going on in the early 70s in France was, yes, I mean, it was the echo of the libertarian, the, the, the anarchist uprising of May 68 and the world. It's not, it's, uh, the politics were, of course, very important, but society was changing in profound ways. Um, so the movie opens with your cast, a very young cast, you know, voicing these political opinions and convictions. But, you know, since they're high schoolers, it has this, I mean, at least for me, from 2013, looking back, this very precious absurdity to it. I mean, I don't think I know a single high schooler who has any even interest in politics, at, at least certainly yes, here. You know, that, that, was, that was the most, uh, not, not surprising, but I did not realize the extent I did not realize how much that whole culture was gone. And I, I did not realize how the relationship to social history was gone. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's really interesting. Like, you know, it's like a forgotten language. And um, in, in, in the 70s, in the early 70s, in a French high school, everybody was involved in discussing politics, in discussing. In, in Discussing nuances of uh, radical politics. I mean, and you had to define yourself because you had so many groups and subgroups. You, you had like four of different uh, um, Trotskyite groups. You had Maoists. You had anarchists. You had whatever. It's and 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 you 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 had to be to be very clear about your position. And and, and it's, it's not just the interest in the past. It's because people were so convinced that you know, a major revolution was coming. So they were kind of uh, learning from the mistakes of the past and the, 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 to, to, to hopefully get it right next time. The, the, the next time never happened. Yeah, yeah, but it, there's still something that, that kind of transcends this period, you know, just, I guess, the questions of youth, where, you know, how do I contribute? Yes. How do I find my own aesthetics? You know, it, well, you know, it, 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 there are things that are eternal and universal about youth. It's an age when you don't know much about yourself and don't know much about the world, and you try to fit in, you try to figure out where your is and what you can do, what you can't do, and you're pushing, and, you're, and, and it, it's a moment of questioning, it's a moment of uh, self-discovery. And it, 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 in many everything was more extreme in the, in, the, in the 1970s, and including that, because uh, it's a very special experience coming of age in a world that is in complete chaos. You have, like, really nothing to lean on. So 
there's, there is a very specific 1970s um, dimension to this story, but ultimately it tells the story of any youth when you, it's, it's with, because it's, uh, it's, 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 it's always about uh, do you share the values of your age group? Do you fit in? Don't you fit in? And how are you going to find your own path? And basically what Gilles does, and he, he does it the same way any kid his age does it, except he does it into a world, in the middle of a world that's in major turmoil. What was it like working with you know, young actors from today, playing these you know, young characters from the past? When, did you learn anything about convictions? You know, like how these I, young people... Uh, you know, I, I think I learned from them as much as they learned from me. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, 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 I, uh, you know, they, they don't have uh, difficulty relating to the music, they don't have difficulty relating to the clothes, but of course when we start discussing politics, their perspective on politics, even for kids who are extremely politicized, is very different from whatever the 70s were, were, were about. Because, because the 70s believed in the future, they believed in, in, you know, in, in like a transforming society like in major ways. Uh, whereas um, whereas uh, politics today are about amending modern society. It's, it's basically about uh, fixing what's deadly wrong. But it, 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 there, there's not this uh, utopian notion that, uh, uh, that what, what is to come is a completely new set of values. Yeah, it, you know, I, um, one of the young actresses is from here in New York, and I had—I've never had this experience before, but I recognize her from just being in my neighborhood. You know, I think <laughs> one of her first, but she has this very striking uh, long red hair, uh, India yes. Salvor Menez, and I finally realized I think I just know her from the neighborhood, and then I looked at her <laughs> later, and I was right. <laughs> but, yes, yes, yes. No, and she's she's brilliant. I love her. I mean, she's a very talented artist. Yeah. I, I basically knew her not as an, I, you know, not not as someone who wanted to act, but someone who's mostly an artist and he's a and I love her work. Yeah, but how do you find you know such fresh faces for you? I mean, yeah, for you when when you're working with new actors, do you spend well, a lot of time? It, you know, it was one of the it, it was it was very much what what making this film was about. I mean, I really wanted to go back to working with very young actors to 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 to, to somehow be in touch with the energy of. of Teenagers, and uh, uh, because I think that uh, cinema is so much about uh, uh, about that energy, and I think that the movies today, I mean, they get the kids very wrong. I mean, there's a, there's a very uh, caricature representation of what uh, what teenagers are about. I mean, I think they are often much more serious, much deeper, and much more uh, uh, involved in big ideas than what we 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 we, we uh, than it's made up than what than uh, it's made up to be, and uh, and um, so, so it's, it's, uh, what, what, what I loved was, of course, the spontaneity. I mean, you know, there's, there's something, I mean, they give everything. It's the first time they're in a movie, and I try to help them forget it's a movie. I try to give them a sense that they are living through those times, that, they, that, that stuff is somehow happening around them. I, 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 I try to give them as little pressure as I can, but I try, you know, just to throw them in those situations, and, 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 and I'm just... Um, fascinated by the way they they react the way they absorb them the way they um uh, you know it's 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 it, it, it's something you don't get with uh, with, with 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 actors you know, the music you use in this new film, I, I, I'm dying to ask you about this. It seems that if you made a mixtape for someone back when, you know, people actually made those sorts of things, yeah. would, would a lot of these songs be on it? I mean, they seem like they're very oh, yes. personal songs of yours. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the soundtrack to this film is as autobiographical as you can get. I mean, you know, it's really the stuff I was listening at that age. You know, it's kind of interesting because when I was making uh, Cold Water, I used like the Bigger names, Bob Dylan, Leonard yeah. Cohen, Janis Joplin, Creedence Clearwater Revival, whatever, you know. But it was, it was stuff I loved. It was stuff I listened to, of course. But it was the taste that I did share with the majority in my generation. Whereas in something in the air, ultimately it's an homage to, like, to the British underground or something. You know, it's, 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 it's an homage to the stuff I really loved. And, and you know, that was, that was the... the really was that was I, 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 I really had a hard time sharing with the other kids because you know it was a, um, some of them 
did get uh, Nick Drake or, or, or Sid Barrett or, or Captain Beefheart, but not, not certainly not the majority. It was just like a tiny, tiny group. And, and, and I was extremely faithful to the music I was listening at that time, meaning some of the music has stayed, meaning, you know, Sid Barrett, I mean, even the kids in the film, I, you know, they say, oh, wow, you have, you know, you, you, you're using Sid Barrett music in your film, but, or, or Nick Drake, but then... They had they had never heard of Kevin Ayers. They had and of course they had never heard of you know of obscure bands like Amazing Blondell or stuff. It's strangely strange, but I, it's stuff that I love and I listened to that stuff when I was that age. Did they know Soft Machine at least? Uh, hardly, hardly. Oh, that seems the one band that makes it into the film itself. The girl's uh, parents are working on the light show. That's why. She yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> but because it's you know Soft Machine was a big deal in France. <laughs> in, in, in the 70s. I mean, they were because they, 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 they played a lot in France. They had this kind of uh, Parisian connection. Uh, they, would, you, they, would, they, they, would, they would play at like leftist events, um, blah, blah, blah. And also, you know, in France, you, 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 you have to keep in mind that in the 70s, what the music leftists loved was not rock. Rock was petit bourgeois. What they loved was free jazz. And somehow, um, Soft Machine had jazz credentials. So they were, uh, you know, they were adopted. They were, uh, uh, they, 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 they were one of the, you know, uh, popular within, you know, the mod, you know, the, the countercultural milieu of English bands. Our hero so, walks away at the very end of the film seeming to have realized something very important. And, and, and if you had to put that into words, what is that? Oh, he, he understood. He, he, at, at the end, he's sitting in this theater, and he's, you know, he, he, he has been attracted by cinema, but he just doesn't understand where his position is in, in cinema. He doesn't want to become a film, militant filmmaker. He doesn't want to do, you know, a stupid uh, nine-to-five job in, in a film studio. So he walks into this, this movie that has this uh, um, experimental... <laughs> film program, and uh, and and then he realizes two things: one, that whatever cinema means to him has to do with the freedom of independent filmmaking and eventually experimental filmmaking, certainly out of the industry. And also, he understands that why, the reason why he has wanted to make movies in the first place is because movies uh, have something personal to say to him. And, and they say something deeply personal through the resurrection of his lost love. You know, cinema has the power of reconciling yourself with the past, of reviving the past. And, uh, and, 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 uh, uh, and in many ways, that's very much what all art should be about or is about. And, uh, and, uh, and I think he kind of, at that point, we, we, we leave him at the beginning of his path. I mean, he has like this kind of sparkle that kind of just uh, shows him the way. And, uh, and, and we leave him very much at the start of a long path. <laughs> but at least, he's on, uh, at least he's on his own track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a really beautiful film. And thank you so much for taking some time uh, to talk with me. Oh, it was a pleasure. So that's the director, Olivier Assayas, talking with me somewhere in the French countryside. You could hear his children uh, in the background. So his new movie, Something in the Air, opened up this past weekend here in the New York City area. Definitely one of the better films out right now. You are listening to Too Much Information on WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker. And our next guest uh, for the rest of the hour, joining us for the rest of the hour, is Keo Stark, an author and independent learning activist. She's just published a book called Don't Go Back to School, a handbook for learning almost anything. And now she joins us for the rest of the hour live. Welcome to WFMU, Keo. Thanks for having me. Hi. Yeah, no, it's, it's great that you could come all the way down here. So I want to ask you first, what exactly is this book? The last time I checked, uh, higher education was, you know, the key to financial and personal success. Um, what exactly are you doing here with this uh, message, don't go back to school? 
Uh, well, I'm trying to tell you that you don't have to go back to school um, for your education, for your financial success, for your own happiness, um, that learning isn't locked up in universities. And what set you off on deciding to, to do this? I am a teacher and a grad school dropout. And for some reason, everyone... So it's like self-justification. Yeah, exactly. So, um, for some reason, everybody thought that I would have the line on whether or not they should go back to school. Mm. So people ask me this all the time. And when I asked them why they wanted to go back, it was always about learning and not about, well, I need this for my job. So it seemed like, well, you can learn without going to school, so why would you pay all that money? And they would look at me blankly like, well, what do you mean? How do yeah. I do that? And I wanted to have a sort of user's manual to give them, and that didn't exist. So I wrote one. Uh, so if you, back when you decided to go to grad school and before you dropped out, if you had come across this book, would, would that have made an impression on you? I think so, yeah. Um, I did go to graduate school right out of undergrad because I thought, I want to keep learning. This is so fun. Um, and nobody really told me that graduate school is professional school for professors. Uh -huh. what, what did you get at, uh, where, what did you go to study? I went to Yale. Okay. No, what did you go to study? Oh, oh, American Studies, mm. which is already kind of amorphous. Yeah. So I went through two years of coursework, and it's a very Marxist department. Um, That's what they say in the media. Yes. <laughs> so I was taking classes with all these very wonderful, very uh, politically astute professors who were essentially not involved in the world of politics. And mm -hmm. one day that seemed like a bit of a contradiction to me. And so I decided to go take a walk in the real world and see what So it was very, it was like a sudden decision. Mostly, yeah. I'm that kind of person. Okay. So did you find yourself, when you were putting this book together, uh, writing for this young Kia Stark? That oh, that's such a good question. I think so, to some degree. Um, you know, particularly thinking about what kinds of questions yeah. people would have about how to do this and why they should do it. Um, I do think that if this book had existed and I had mm. found it as a 20-year-old thinking about going to graduate school, I might have made a different decision. Well, plus it, it also seems that there must be, you know, experiences from actually your, uh, uh, the three years you did spend mm -hmm. in grad school. I mean, like no one would want to read a book on heroin addiction from uh, like a non-heroin <laughs> addict. <laughs> so it seems that, you know, there, can you, I'm, I'd love for you to talk about some of the things that you know that you wouldn't have been able to, to put into this book if you hadn't gone. Sure. I mean, some of it is knowing actually for myself how to go about learning in a rigorous way. So I had a year uh, before the dissertation where I was sent away to read and I got to make up four fields that I was supposed to make myself an expert in, at least enough to stand up in front of a class and mm -hmm. talk about them. Um, so I went off into the woods, basically, with a lot of books and a library and read them all and had to figure out how to make a coherent narrative out of that and to figure out which books were talking to each other um, and what different factions were telling the same story. And that's the part where I really learned everything yeah. and anything. When you were in the woods? Well, the woods is an exaggeration. Okay. But yeah, when I was in the woods. Uh, it, it was the point where I came out and I felt like I know some stuff here. Like I know some actual facts and some facts that are in contradiction with each other. And if you ask me about uh, the history of 19th century working class, I can tell you a few things. And then you decided that you didn't need to stick in the system to finish the dissertation or? I started it and then um, having figured out that uh, it was professional school yeah. for professors, and I didn't actually want to be a professor. I sort of tried to work it both ways, and I came up with what yeah. I thought was going to be a real nonfiction project, and I dazzled my advisors into approving it, but then in the end, they really wanted a real dissertation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just walked You walked, you walked. Yeah. Now, I th you know, when you listen in on or read conversations about our education system today, it seems that there's a pretty large number of people who agree that it's broken and this seems to lead most of the conversation to be about educational reform how to fix it mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm curious for you when you decided to, to take on this project were you did you did you address the issue of reform or was this like full-on bypass like I'm, I'm skipping that 
Um, it's pretty much a bypass. I, I think reform is uh, an amazing project that other very smart people are engaged in, and I'm not sure if it's going to work, but it's just not my area of expertise, and it's not what I was really interested in. Mm. I'm interested in making sure there are alternatives for people to learn outside of school, yeah. and that's got nothing to do with reform. That's sort of revolutionary, actually. Yeah, you actually have this great line in the introduction where you say that the reform misses the, the f- whole fundamental problem. I, I mean, that's a, that's kind of a pretty large accusation to make at the reformer. <laughs> it's um, heavy. It is heavy, and I think it's really true. I, I think that they're trying to reform an institution that has a lot of problems, and that in the meantime, outside of the institution, people are finding other ways to learn, and in a lot of ways, they're finding that to be better learning. Um, so all of the conversations that are about fixing school mm. are kind of, you know, faculty coffee room conversations as far as I'm concerned. They're Ouch. insider baseball, and I wish them really well. But in the meantime, I think the really interesting things are going on outside. Yeah, and we're going to talk about some of the individuals you do talk to in this book. But I want to, you know, come to the issue of uh, technology first. You do some pretty serious work with technology. Currently, you're running the Knight Mozilla Open News Learning Project for journalists, developers, and civic data news hackers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I'm, I'm really curious. It seems that for a lot of big institutions and big money, uh, for them to get past the idea of, I mean, they're not getting past the idea of reform because they think they can just fix it all with computers. <laughs> Do you mean the the sort of massive classes? Yeah, there just seems like a lot of investment in time and money and institutions into trying to take on what's wrong with the educational system with computers. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem that those massively online open classes, yes, the which are called MOOCs, uh, that they're trying to solve is scaling up teaching. Mm-hmm. So they're saying, we have this resource, which is teaching, and we want to broadcast it wide and loud. Um, the problem is that teaching isn't really the only or most important thing that goes on in a classroom. Learning is yeah. the most important thing. And MOOCs are not designed f- to uh, scale up learning. So they're basically a school-like experience that's online. And yeah. that's, a, to my mind, not a very creative use of technology. No. So you're interested in really the, the solution being the bypass being about learning, not about the teaching. Uh, learning and particularly connecting learners with each other. So uh, if you've ever taken a MOOC, you'll see that they do have discussion forums, but they're pretty badly hmm. organized as ways of making little communities for people to learn in. So I think for me, it's always been the economics that makes this idea so obvious or mm-hmm. relevant, especially right now, you know, coming out of a recession when, you know, wages are going down and the s- cost of education is going up and yeah. up and up. And grad school is kind of obscenely expensive. And, you know, while you do have maybe some uh you have a good chance of making some money going to law school or medical school. It seems going to get an American studies degree or a liberal liberal arts degree. Uh, it's you know there's you can shell out you know hundred grand plus or or a degree in journalism mm-hmm. or an MFA, and you're not. It's it's probably not. I mean, statistically proven that it's probably a really bad risk, bad idea. Yeah, there, there's not a lot of jobs for new academics, and the story is that we've been overproducing professors yeah. for quite a long time, so there's uh, scarcity of jobs. So you put in all this time and energy and research in the archives and all this money, and it's not just your tuition. You have to support yourself, and d- possibly, if you're lucky enough to get like teaching assistant jobs, you get very poorly paid for yeah. doing those. Um, but we all know this. Yeah. But uh, you having researched this, like, how bad really is it? How bad really is it? Is it, it like the, this situation of the over, uh, the, the, the too many numbers of, of churned out PhDs every year? Well, I dropped out in the mid-90s, and yeah. it was already the conversation then that there were way too many of us and not enough jobs. Um, and so if you weren't a superstar, yeah. you really didn't have a hope. And if you were a superstar you might be able to get a job in a place that wasn't particularly where you wanted to live. Flyover um, country. I mean. Yeah. 
Well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not, and I'm not, I'm not trying to to, to uh, say something bad about our neighbors in flyover country. It's just that that that's really where the only few openings will be. And you know, yeah. uprooting yourself from your friends and your family right. is hard. Right. Definitely. Um, graduate school is also quite infantilizing. I mean, you know, you're put into this system as an adult yeah. um, and you're continue to be treated like a student and not given full responsibility for things. And you're accountable to your um, mentors or masters or however masters. you think of them. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's not a great experience for a lot of people. And then, I, you know, I was lucky and I had a fellowship. Yes. So it wasn't as big of a decision for me because I wasn't going to go into any debt yeah. to do this. If I hadn't had a fellowship, I wouldn't have had the money to go. And I well, you could have borrowed it. That's I what million. You know, that's I what know. But I don't think I would have made that decision, yeah. particularly because it was I was twenty and um, it just was this sort of abstract pleasure of I would like to keep hanging out in the library <laughs> and doing that for uh, being paid a, even if it's a little bit of money you are 20 that makes sense but going into a hundred thousand dollars debt but then again you know back in the 90s when we're talking about when there weren't enough jobs and there were too many uh, 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 newly minted PhDs being turned out every year the prices are not the same today right no not at all like at how, all. how like how bad is it now you know, I don't have like generalized numbers, but um, I teach as an adjunct at a kind of a funky program at NYU called the Interactive Telecommunications yeah, Lots of program. people like to think about going there. Yeah. I've, I've had a lot of people ask me, should I apply there? Should I go there? Yeah. And it's great. It's so interesting. And it is the study of the recently possible, and it's mm. really exciting. Um, I teach there as an adjunct because I love it, and I don't get paid very well. Um, I kind of get a return on that mm -hmm. in my own learning because teaching is a really great way to learn. And so if you teach half of a, a class of books that you've only read for the first time recently, then, mm -hmm. you know, you're getting to really dig into them. But anyway, the point is it's really expensive and all the students come out with an extraordinary amount of debt. Yeah. Um, so when I was working on this book, uh, I had probably five or six people call me or email me who were applying to the program and wanted me to tell them whether they should go or not. Um, and it was such an interesting conversation that I actually took some real time to talk to these people yeah. and ask them, well, what do you want to get out of it? And one or two of them, I said, yeah, y you know, it, it, if you have the money or if you're not afraid of the debt, I think you're going to get a lot out of this program. And there were at least two of them who I just said, you're not going to get that there. So why would you pay the money for it? Yeah. Um, so, and Another thing that happens um, is that because of the project, I got a lot of people just randomly emailing me and asking for advice on whether they should go back to school. Yeah. Oh. And this turned out to be really lovely because I would ask them, well, what do you want to learn? And they would tell me, and I would write back and give them as much concrete advice as I could. You could do this, you could do this. If it's technology, you could find a hacker space or this, yeah, you know, yeah. use this kind of list. And inevitably they wrote back to me and said, oh, I'm already doing that. And all they really wanted was validation that this was a legitimate way to do things and that they were on the right track. Yeah, yeah, no, and, it, and I, I think a lot of that comes from it's just brand new. I mean, we have probably more people, or at least a larger number of people trying something like this now. And, yeah. and for me, it seemed like there must be a tipping point. Recently with the economics, the cost going so high that you're just looking at a piece of paper that says, okay, I'm gonna go do this and I'm gonna owe Right. this much money right. that I think that a lot of people are looking for other answers and now they have uh, your book. So you're listening to WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker. This is Too Much Information. Our guest today is Kia Stark and we are talking about her book, Don't Go Back to School. And if you'd like some uh, free advice uh, <laughs> about <laughs> grad school, perhaps you just uh, perhaps there's someone out there right now, someone waking up on the floor thinking that the only way out of their <laughs> horrible situation is grad school. I, I mean, that's really the only time I ever thought about like going to get an MFA. It would be these dark nights of the right. soul where I'd be like, oh man, right. I'm just gonna have to go to grad school. Right. There's no other way out. And then you know, the sun would come out. I'd feel a little bit better on myself. I'm like, that's the <laughs> stupidest idea I've ever had. 
Well, I'd be happy to answer questions for people who are in a little less sure. of a black and yeah, white place sure, as sure. well. Sure, uh, sure. You can give us a call. The on-air call-in number here is 201-209-9368. But Kia's going to be here for the rest of the hour. But let's let's talk uh, specifically, you know, let's a little bit more about this book. It's based on a number of interviews you do with people who, for the most part, didn't go to grad school. Yeah, I actually ended up interviewing about 100 people, and they ranged from high school dropouts to people with graduate degrees. Um, most of them, I would say, either dropped out of college or did graduate from college. Most of the people who did graduate from college told me that um, they didn't really value that much what they had learned there and that everything they knew about what they were doing now is something they learned on their own outside wow. of school. So if you fed this into the computer and you had all these data points, what would be sort of the, the, the things that across the board, or was there anything that for the majority of them had? Yes, um, there, were, there were a lot of different useful themes. The, the main four themes were, um, the first is a huge one, that people don't learn by themselves. Mm. So the whole name, independent learners, is yes. kind of catchy and it's useful and people sort of know what you mean, but it does suggest solo learning and that is actually a total lie. Um, people learn in communities with each other, yeah, yeah. teaching what? each other, learning from each other. Um, so that's a huge thing and everyone I talked to talked about that in one way or another. Yeah, Some people who are shy and nerdy were learning from other people online rather than in person. <laughs> um, but the, it all counts as it, learning collectively. Yeah, well, computers certainly make that easier to do. But let's let's dive into one of them. Um, Katerina Rindy it seems like a great example on this. Um, what, what did she do? Uh, yeah, Katerina Rindy um, was working uh, in nonprofit administration and really wanted to start a business. And thought that she needed to go to business school to do that. And she actually applied and didn't get in. And then she thought, well, I'm going to do this anyway. Mm. Um, and so she started uh, a, like a networking group with her friends. And I think it's called the Goldfish Group. Um, that was because that was the snack they had the uh -huh. first time. And it was just people talking to each other about what they were trying to do with work and helping each other. And then out of that, she joined uh, the Faux MBA reading group, um, which is one of my more favorite yeah. uh, sort of specific communities. Um, so they have a they have kind of a curriculum which I forced them to put online. They were thinking about it anyway, but I nudged them. Yeah. Um, and they would pick business school books. They you know they decided what kinds of things that were going to be helpful and not helpful. So there was a certain segment of finance stuff that none of them were working on with their businesses. So they focused on other things. And they read stuff and they were really rigorous and they ran their own businesses through Amazing. the models that were in these books. And, you know, they got everything they needed um, by doing it that way. And how many people uh, were in this group and how did they find each other? That's a great question. Um, I know that Katerina found it through a friend of hers. Um, and then I think that she said there were 10 or 12 people in it at any given time. Uh, so, and, and I, I guess the other uh, model that some uh, many of your inter interviewees have, um, and, and I, I'm thinking of Astra Taylor, the writer and filmmaker, um, she talks about learning from others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, almost everybody talked about learning from others in one way or another. And the story Astra told me is about making her first <laughs> film, um, which she didn't really know how to do, but she had seen some films that were narrative nonfiction films and it kind of opened up a real world to her uh, that you could make these kind of movies, that movies didn't have to be uh, uh. fictional narrative. Um, so she got a grant to do a very short nonfiction film of, that was very practical uh, about how to get a certain nutrient out of a tree in yeah. um, a part of Africa. And it was very important to the local nutrition. And so she got the job and then got a friend of hers uh, who spoke French, which was the language in the country, and who knew uh, filmmaking and tagged along. And, and she did all the coordination and the production, but she learned about all the things that were needed, like B-roll and um, 
you know, sound design by watching and asking a lot of questions. And then uh, the next time she was able to do it on her own. She also talks very frankly about the value of hiring people who know what they're doing when you have the opportunity or collaborating with people who know what they're doing. You can learn from them, but you can also narrow the number of things you have to actually learn yeah. yourself. But how do you keep that from just you know, turning cutthroat mercenary? Um, in what way? And then, you know, I mean, I think Astra even talks about that. In a way, you're like trying to suck out as much information <laughs> as you possibly can and then move on to, to <laughs> which when you're thinking of a book, it sounds, you know, pleasant. And right. It's less vampiric <laughs> than, you know, like <laughs> an individual. Yes. I think um, most of the people I talked to also specifically talked about not being a vampire yeah. and in, not in those words. Uh, but it was important that when you come to an experience where you're learning from other people that you have something to give as well. Yeah. Um, one of my interviewees, Quinn Norton, even said that, uh, and she has lots of other things to give, but she said sometimes the best thing you can do to give is to wash someone's dishes or cook them dinner. You know, like anything you can do so that it yeah. turns into uh, a genuine generosity uh, rather than, you know, let me suck the life yeah. out of you. Um, one of the things that's fascinating to me about this project is, uh, well, I, I, I have a, I tend to shy away from DIY books like sort of how to because it always makes me think of that Life of Brian moment. Where like you must learn to think for yourself, <laughs> and everyone's like, yes, we must think for <laughs> ourselves, and it just seems kind of preposterous about trying to get the formula how to do it for yourself. But I find that in reading, you know, the the, the interviews in this book that that I didn't. You know, I was able to. Uh, yeah, that that didn't flare up at all. In fact, I learned a lot from from some of the. But I think that a lot of your interviewees talk about the DIY world, and especially like one of my favorite ones, Dan Sinker. Mm -hmm. Can can you talk about him and about what where he was coming from and the crossover? Sure. Um, so Dan Sinker, uh, who. Uh, been on the show before. Okay, awesome. Um, and he was the founder uh, and publisher of Punk Planet for a very long time until it closed down. Uh, he's also, um, without having any graduate education in journalism, been a journalism professor. He now runs the Open News Project. I work for him, so mm -hmm. that's kind of caveat. Um, but he did graduate from college and said that he really learned um, the most important things that he learned from doing Punk Planet. Um, and the one thing that he learned in school that was extremely useful to him in Punk Planet was video editing. Hmm. Now, Punk Planet was a print publication. But he said when they started, it was actually just terrible. Um, none of them knew how to edit. And he realized that he was borrowing the editing skills that he knew from film. And if he could apply those to textual pieces that all of a sudden you know, he had learned yeah. something in school that was useful. But really, he talks about how the DIY punk scene that he was coming out of very early on in high school, when he started doing zines, was just, you know, that was his school. And yeah. that was this very liberating uh, scene where people were just making it up on their own and learning on their own. And, um, and he talks about going from that life to his life as a student at the Art Institute of Chicago and how they were very, very separate worlds. But what's fascinating is that, and he talks about this and a number of your uh, subjects do, is that those worlds are, are, are finding more and more connections between the two. In fact, the, one of the greatest credentials you can have is being able to do things on your own. I think so. I mean, I, you know, I get all these questions about, well, aren't I, how am I going to get a job? Yeah. Um, and I talked to a few people who are in a position to hire people, and they all said that for them, the number one qualification is somebody who can learn on the job, yeah. who knows how to learn, who knows how to learn quickly. They don't, you know, one of the people I interviewed whose interview is in the book said, I don't care where you went to school or what degree you have or whether or not you have a degree. I care with, I don't even care whether you know what you need to know to do this job. I care whether you can figure it out fast. Yeah, yeah. So. But unfortunately, uh, uh, the the resume scanning computers. I don't know if they are, they can do that yet. Last I checked, like they're just like graduate school. Beep beep. No, <laughs> reject. Well, I've never actually seen one of these purported mm. resume scanning computers. No, I think people are very nervous about that. And to some degree, if you want the kind of job 
that has a resume scanner, you may have a problem if you don't have the right resume. Yeah. Um, your alternative is to have some kind of chutzpah and walk in uh, or write a different kind of letter that says, look, I don't have a degree, but I have this experience and you know this desire and what's it gonna hurt to try me out? Yeah. Um, yeah. Or to find one thing, one of your guests, um, uh, I thought Jim Monroe, I believe, yeah, Jim Monroe, um, he talks about uh, a writer who says all he needed was one book. Right. Like right. having one qualification, the one that you can put in your Twitter bio. Right. Or the one if, or, 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 or yeah, can you talk about him and, and what he, what he sure. has to say? He's, he's great. Um, so he, when he was very young, he wanted to be a writer and he, he wrote lots of stuff and then um, wrote a novel that he was really ready to submit. He got a book called How to Be Your Own Literary Agent. He sent out a bunch of, you know, cold uh, manuscripts, meaning uninvited. Mm. And Going to the slush pile, usually. Yeah. And he got very lucky in that somebody read it. So this he is the first to say this is not like a typical story. Um, but the book got published, and it was published by HarperCollins, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch. And after the novel was published, Jim felt like, okay, I, I have this, you know, and I don't want to work for Rupert Murdoch, so I'm going to do this myself. Um, and he just went about in the same way that he figured out how to be a literary yeah. agent. He figured out how to publish his own books, and he makes a living that way. Um, he continues to publish his own books. He's very, very generous in sharing everything he knows about the economics and the process. Um, then more recently, he decided he wanted to make films, and he kind of approached it the same way, like, let's just do this. Um, so... The great part of his interview is when he talked about how he made all these mistakes and because he made them in a real context, he learned things in a very different way than you would in film school. Um, so the importance of sound, anyone will tell you that sound is important. Well, he messed it up and then he <laughs> figured out why it's important and in what kind of subtle ways. So. Yeah, yeah. So um, we have Keo Stark here on the show today. Uh, we've got about another 17 minutes. Um, you can give us a call at 201-209-9368 if you want some uh, advice about not going back to school. But I have something on the uh, playlist page at WFMU.org. This is Dan uh, Pfeiffer writing in here. He says, hello, we are listening to your show with my digital art class at NYU <laughs> Steinhardt, and we have a question. Uh, how can we trust the information that isn't vouched for by an educational institution? That's and he writes in that he is a graduate of ITP. Yes. Hi, Dan. Um, so that's a really good question, and one of the things that I talk about in the book is, I mean, independent learning is not necessarily easier than learning in school. Um, it can be harder, and one of the reasons is you have to teach yourself how to mm -hmm. evaluate information. So you're going to do that in concert with other people, but you're going to have to make a really concerted effort um, to figure out how to vet information and how to compare different forms of information and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, some some of the times it's very obvious, though. I mean, I, I think that Chris Bathgate is another story. Uh, can you tell us about him and what he learned? I, I, I love this one. This one, I think. I mean, sure. I keep saying they're all my favorite, but I, I, I just <laughs> I think this one is a very instructional tale. Um, so Chris Bathgate is a machinist artist, and he uh, went to art school and had to work three jobs to pay afford his it. way to afford going to art school. And he wasn't getting a lot out of it. Um, in particular, he felt he was reading all this art theory, but no one was teaching him any skills, and he wanted to make big metal objects and he wasn't being taught how to use the tools correctly or the physics of metal objects. And so he did a whole year, um, and then he walked by the school for his the first day of his second year and just kept walking and decided What was going on in his head? Uh, that it wasn't helping him. Um, and so he decided to put the money into buying himself tools and teaching himself how yeah. to use those tools so that he could make the art he wanted to make without it falling apart. So and how did it work out for him? Uh, it worked out really well. He's a, <laughs> he's a successful artist. He has uh, galleries and he has art in museums and he sells his own stuff. He also yeah. talks about um, the process of selling your own work and how kind of liberating that is and how being able to make a living as an artist is part of what's really important 
um, as much as reputation. Yeah, yeah. So when he told you that story about walking past the school, did that resonate for you when you decided to leave as well? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I wasn't in that financial position. Yeah. and uh, That's I true. That's what makes this story so cut and dry. Yeah. Um, so, but I definitely had a moment of walking by and thinking, hmm, not today. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, there's a lot of uh, young people I meet from the radio world that are thinking about going to grad school yeah. to, to learn uh, uh, audio or, ra- you know, which seems preposterous to pay for. And I, I always say that uh, you can do, you know, one of the great things about, you know, machines cost money to make these giant metal sculptures, whereas with a computer and a microphone, you know, even with film, we've, we're seeing this, you know, over and over and over again, that the money you could spend on going to a film school, you could make two films. Yeah. It's absolutely true. There are situations where what you want to learn requires like a lab and equipment. Um, and so that's... So you want to make nukes? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, somebody did, that kid. Um, but there, there's also an increasing trend that I really like to see, which is people getting together to share tools and to build spaces for what they need. So there mm. are biohacking spaces and hacker spaces and... Uh, there's a space in Brooklyn that's a, a bio lab where you can go and, you know, do genetic research. Yeah. They have all the tools. So do you think things it's, it's getting easier? I mean, I, I know that you, know, you have a very uh, interesting sample group and that, you know, everyone seems to, to pull it off. And, 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 you know, I would say if I was a 20-year-old reading this, yeah, I, I would be easily swayed. Sure. That this, but I'm, I'm wondering, do you, do, you, do you think we might be, are we at the beginning of this, or the middle of something, or, or, are there, or is this just, you know, an aberration because, you know, the, the prices are so just out of whack with what people can? No, I think we're at the beginning of something. I mean, people have been learning independently, you know, for a long time. And the point is that more and more people are doing it, and we need, as a society, more and more resources for those people and more respect for that kind of learning. Um, If you think about the world of five years from now, fewer and fewer people are going to be able to afford a traditional college education um, or possibly even want one. And so the future is going to be a future in which employers are going to have to learn to evaluate people based on different criteria besides the resume scanner yeah. um, and on their ability to learn on their portfolio work. And, and, like and when you think of, you know, from the point of view of someone uh, trying to evaluate that, like what would be some of the, th- you know, like we talked about the resume scanner thing, not being able to really do much other than yes, no, grad <laughs> school. You know, like right. if, if we could program this, machine from the using this group of people like what would be some of the things that would 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 go into the questionnaire um i think some of it is the question of like what have you taught yourself um and how did you go about it and how would you teach yourself to do the things you need to do this job rather than assuming that it's about having qualifications uh right at the outset it's, I talked to Tony Shea, who's the head of Zappos, and he said, I haven't looked at a resume in years. And he didn't just mean him. He meant his whole department. Um, because for him, it's much more a matter of if you fit the corporate culture, yeah. if you have the right kind of attitude, you can train anybody. So. Uh-huh. Um, you know, coming back to Quinn Norton, someone you brought up earlier, she has this great story about where she would just, you know, her mother told her to smile and nod. She was making furniture mm-hmm. and sl- say to the customer, oh, yeah, we'll figure that out. And then just trying to figure it out, which sounds like, OK, that m- might not work. But it seems like it does every time for so many of the people, not just her. How, yeah. how is that possible? Yeah, um, it's generally referred to as the fake it till you make it approach. And it involves saying, yes, I can do that, closing the door, and then figuring it out. Um, And I haven't run into very many stories of people for whom that didn't work. Um, It also involves a certain amount of humility, and you may have to stretch a deadline because you're still figuring it out, something like that. But one of my first jobs uh, was uh, processing photographs for archaeologists at my college and I had processed exactly one roll of film <laughs> and one print. And I said, I can do that and close the door. And, you know. Uh, well, we should also say that you did this uh, book, DIY. I mean, the whole, whole process. You started this off with a very successful Kickstarter. And can you, can you talk about, um, I mean, did you, you've, you've, you've published other books, but you had help. You had publishers. This was all you. 
Yes, um, which is uh, much more of an undertaking than I expected. <laughs> but yeah, I have a, a published novel, and when I was thinking about doing this book, I decided that in the spirit of the book, uh, and also so that I could keep the book as I wanted it to be, rather than as the marketing department of a uh. publisher thought that I that it should be, um, that I was going to do it myself, and I raised some money on Kickstarter, much more than I expected, which is lucky because I didn't know how to budget any of this. Um, so a lot of that money did get spent uh, more than you would expect. Uh, and I figured it out as I went along. I was lucky in that I know some people who could answer questions for me, including the, the person who published my novel. Um, but I just made mistake after mistake after mistake, and there are mistakes in the book. And you know, you learn how to make mistakes and correct them and who you can get information from and cross-referencing information. And I also learned to hire people who could help me. So yeah. I hired an amazing editor. Um, and I hired an amazing designer who handled all the talking to printers. I still had to learn what all the decisions meant in printing, like paperweight yeah. and size and trim size and the implications of all of those yeah. things. You know, it seems that uh, the, this self-publishing world um, in the dealing with the real world of publishing, especially in a city like New York, I, I think you can, pr I'd, like, I'd love to ask you about the perception of how that is changing. Because it used to be, you know, we would just call this the vanity press. This right. is not a real book. Right. But then we have things like Fifty Shades of Grey, which started out as a right. self-published book. And it's, I think, the, it's more copies than the Bible and Harry Potter combined. Is <laughs> that really true? Uh, probably not. I think so. <laughs> I, I <know laughs> Maybe not the Bible, but I think the, the Boy Wizard, yes. I think I think more more, more copies. Yeah, so it seems like, again, like there's a, there's a concrete example mm -hmm. from an outsider that those worlds are a little more porous and, and you're getting the kind of respect, almost maybe more respect for doing is that true um i don't know about more respect but it's definitely uh, a different kind of respect and one thing that's really important for independent publishing is that you have to already have a community um you can't just write a book and publish it on amazon and say here it is world uh-huh um, if you already have a community to, who's excited about it and can spread the word about it, then that actually you know, increases uh, both the respect for it and your ability to make any money off of it. So um, Kickstarter for me was a great way to do that because yeah. I have 1,500 people who bought the book and are sure, really sure. passionate about it and are telling everyone they know. So I guess what, what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get at is it, it seems that in this new world that having a successful project that you did on your own is actually a credential. Yes, I think it absolutely is. I, I mean, it really turns into one that, that uh, is quantified. You know, you can put it on. It can probably, they can program the machines to, to recognize this. Yes, I made this. Here it is. <laughs> We have uh, a few minutes left, about seven minutes. Uh, you can give us a call if you'd like to uh, uh, ask our, our guest, Keo Stark, uh, any questions about uh, going back to school. The number is 201-209-9368. But I have another comment from the uh, AccuPlaylist. Uh, people are shy here. They like, okay. They'd rather write their questions no in. But this is from Matt, who says he's actually just finished his BFA and major in sculpture. Uh, he can't find work. He's decided to go back to school, and he thinks going back to school for a certificate in web design makes sense for me so I can learn at a quicker pace. Credentials seem to be weighing him down. The lack of credentials, you mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, th I mean, I can't tell everyone in the universe not to go back to school, and if you like learning in a school environment and it feels worth it to you financially, Go do it. I mean, I, you know, I'm speaking to people who are really weighing the financial decision or people who really don't like learning in a school environment. Web design is certainly something you could learn outside of school. Um, yeah. But it's if the credential means something to you in terms of your confidence, then that's your that's yeah. your choice. You know, coming back to the DIY world versus the the official. Like, you know, official culture. I, I guess for me, that metric is always, or, or figuring out the relationship between those two has always been, the, you know, the way I, I, I think things would actually be different. In other words, once it doesn't matter, I mean, the traditional story is you do the self-publish, and then the 
publisher people say, hey, you've done a great job. We're going to put like the right. Fifty Shades of Grey or you're an artist and then you're doing it yourself and you get into a gallery. Mm -hmm. And it seems that the real test is like saying, okay, I don't need that anymore. I can do it on my, I'm going to, in other words, there's no graduating. And it seems that some of the, at least one, you know, with Molly Crabapple, who's an artist that you talked to, seems to suggest that maybe we're almost there. Yeah, Molly is a great story. Um, for her, success is making a living uh, and having people appreciate her art. And she talks about the idea, of course, she would be delighted to have a blue chip gallery representing her, but she's not sure she would make as much money um, mm. for that kind of uh, official art world approval because she'd have to give half of it to the gallery. She just did a Kickstarter as well that was very successful. She's done show. several, yeah, yeah. She had an amazing show called Shell Game. Um, all the paintings sold out. Uh, she sold prints. Um, she is really good at making herself an industry and making beautiful art. Um, she talks about when she was first learning to be an artist that her approach was she looked at every surface uh, that had art on it and said, why isn't that my art? <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's like uh, that's like the the next the next level after fake it till you make yeah. it. I guess. <laughs> I think one of the points here is that it's not easy. I mean, it it's yeah. harder than school in a lot of ways, but it's also I like that easier to learn in a meaningful way uh, than school. You can coast through school without learning very much, and you still get the credential. Um, the resume machine is not necessarily looking at your grades. So, but you're going to show up at the job and not know yeah. how to learn on your own and not be very passionate about it. Um, I mean, I, you know, I know that in some companies, the very, very, very most important qualification you can have for a job is that the job you're applying for is your dream job. You know, if you can say that convincingly and you're not a nut job, you're in. Yeah, yeah. You're employed. Yeah, yeah. So are you going to be allowed to teach now that they found out, find out that you've written this book? Oh, yeah. Several of my backers <laughs> are uh, people I teach with. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Kia Stark, I want to thank you so much for coming in to do the show today on Thanks. Too Much Information. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we have a link to your book um, on the uh, Aki playlist. It's called uh, Don't Go Back to School. Uh, and you can find a link to it there. Uh, thanks again for uh, the folks writing in on the Accu playlist and our imaginary phone callers. We thank you too. Oh, you know what we had? Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back next week.
You're listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, in Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Up next, the Nardwar the Human Cherviette radio show. to WFMU, and it's time right now for the Nardwar the Human Serviette radio show. Today on the Nardwar the Human Serviette radio show, an interview with Questlove from The Roots. A brand new interview with Questlove, drummer of The Roots. To start with, since Questlove is from Philadelphia, here's MC Breeze with It Ain't New York on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show on WFMU. Let's see the Bronx, Manhattan, Queens, Brooklyn, Harlem, Jamaica. Mount Erie, West Philly, the bottom, North Philly, South Philly, West Oakland, Bartram, Philly. That ain't New York. Yo, hey, Master Flag. What up, Breeze? We're gonna rock some beef. We're gonna rock some fast. We all know where it started. And we don't mean to offend. But it ain't New York this time, everybody. Cause Philly's stepping in. With all due respect to New York City, yes, we're fly and we're sedity. He said, Master Flash, MC Breeze, Death, Carol, creator of the melodies. He said, Master Flash, he's the king of the cuts and any human beat boxer nail your butt down below the ground. Boom with the sound. You will hear when you come into Philly town. No, we're not saying. Philadelphia. 
Who are you? Who am I? Can we go back to your theme song while I think about it? You are Questlove. Yes, I am Questlove. That's exactly who I am. I'm Questlove. Welcome to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Thank you, Nartwar. I've been waiting for this moment for a long, long time. And I have a gift for you to welcome you to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Right here, a Motor Town Review poster. <laughs> is, this, is this the jackpot moment of, for you, like when you catch us all off guard? Because right now I've been prepping myself like, I'm not going to get caught. I don't care what he pulls. He can pull Michael Jackson back from the dead. No, I'm not going to get... Yo, this to me, oh my, oh, yo, Willie, wait, what you find? <laughs> yo, I hate when you do this. I love when you do this, but I, ah, uh, man, this. Now, please, could you explain, what are you laughing at? The ventriloquist right off the bat. Willie Tyler and Lester. This is, I mean, to me. I'm, okay, I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna explain to them why this is important to me. Um, I mean, first of all, it's historical, and it's also good to look at. Um, but the the type of world that I am involved in now, I am often the epicenter of review shows like this. Like, you know, this summer I'm gonna I'm gonna back up on the Fourth of July, different luminaries from all walks of life, and. Like, to me, the Motortown Review is one of the greatest, like, review shows ever. Like, simply because, like, you, you get an array of, of, of different stars and, God, Willie Tyler and Lester. I mean, they thought of everything. They have comedians, pop acts, young upstarts, you know, the Contours and Gladys Knight and the Pips. I mean, and Stevie Wonder headlining and... This is amazing. You managed to stump me. You normally wait like four questions in, and then you get the sucker punch. But you, you just came, you came in instantly from the top, which shocking me. Yes, this means a lot. Wait, can is this mine? That is yours to keep Questlove. Okay, good. Because normally you won't be giving shit away. I'm just saying. <laughs> I, I just got a brand new house. This is going up, and I'm gonna frame this baby. And thank you. I appreciate this. I'm so excited you like it. First off, though, I want to ask you, Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder and the Cosby Show got you into sampling, right? Absolutely. Um, many people in the hip-hop world, uh, when they were, you know, the, the, the classic era of beat-making, many consider the episode